I never really knew what what I was, you know, where I was, and what you know what category I was uh, I would be. And I remember I was the first time that MoMA bought one of my works. It was a photo, but it was bought from the painting department, and it was put in with painting. So because I guess uh, John Zarkowski, who's you know was a great person, but he didn't really I think accept kind of sort of postmodernism that I might have represented, you know, it wasn't like real photography. So it was the painting department that was interested in, in my work and not the photo department. That was photographer, videographer, painter, and owner of some photogenic dogs, William Wakeman. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Moving fluently among drawing, painting, photography, and video, William Wegman is hard to characterize. A conceptual postmodernist artist with a funny bone, Wegman is probably best known for the photographs and videos of his Weimaraners in unusual poses and in costumes that look like surreal sight gags. Wegman's early video works, many of which star his dog, Man Ray, combine minimalist performance with low-tech video to create unlikely moments of absurdist comedy. Wegman and Man Ray caught hold in the popular imagination. In fact, the Village Voice named Man Ray 1982's Man of the Year, which was fine with Wegman since he always thought of the dog as his collaborator anyway. But don't let Wegman's easygoing humor and sense of the absurd fool you. His list of accomplishments are legion. Always an innovator, William Wegman was one of the first artists to use video as an art form. Since the 1970s, he's received international acclaim for his work in photography. William Wegman exhibits in shows around the world. His work is in the permanent collections of many museums, including the Walker Center in Minneapolis, the Whitney Museum of Art in New York City, the Smithsonian Art Museum in Washington, D.C., and the Australian National Gallery. His photos and videos have been a great popular success and have appeared on television programs like Sesame Street and Saturday Night Live. He's branched out to create a series of children's books based on fairy tales and a number of books on dogs. In 2006, the Brooklyn Museum explored 40 years of Wegman's work in all media in the aptly titled retrospective, William Wegman, Funny Strange. In a review of the show, the art critic for the New York Times said of Wegman, dogs or no dogs, William Wegman is one of the most important artists to emerge from the heady experiments of the 1970s. I spoke with Bill Wegman in a spacious loft in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York. Before we settled in for a talk, he graciously showed me around his various studios, one for painting, for photography, for video. Two of his three dogs, Bobbin and Candy, settled down very nicely. But one-year-old Flo has a lot of energy, and you'll hear her from time to time, especially close to the end when her patience has clearly worn thin. I was very curious to know how Bill began his working relationship with his first dog, Man Ray. He was six weeks old when I got him in 1970 from Long Beach. I was living in San Pedro, but teaching in Long Beach for one year. He persuaded me to do it. You know, sort of. He, he was around me constantly. I, I couldn't really keep him out. I, I'd go to my studio and I'd 
tie him up at the corner so he wouldn't start chewing things. I was lining up on the floor, and he would whine. So it was much easier to let him chew the things and then photograph him doing them or videotaping him. And he just loved games, so he's a great video dog. And he seemed to respect work. If I was working on something with him, he knew that it was important. I, I kind of imagine it's, it's what a hunting dog does when uh, you're cleaning your gun, you're getting ready to go to your pickup truck and go look for partridge or something like that. You, the prep that went into the video, setting up the equipment, the way he was always on standby, as I thought, and I think that was really great. Also being by myself around him was really good. The fact that I didn't work with a crew, that I didn't quite know how to hook it up, that it took time and it was kind of simple and calm. It's, it's all part of the process. So when, he, when we jumped in and, and, and he's on, he starts to, and it was really mind blowing when he first did this, he starts to look into the camera. He'll look at me and then he looks into the camera oh, we're doing one of these, you know, I know what we're doing now. And so he goes along with it. When you started doing video, artists weren't doing video. Getting involved in video seemed just electric and surprising and, and really something that I, you know, that I felt that I really discovered it. I didn't really know other artists that were using it. It was just a, something that happened. I didn't really necessarily calculate this as a career, but I remember borrowing some equipment and bring it into my studio when I was a visiting artist at the University of Wisconsin. And I set the stuff up and immediately had a sense of how I could use it. And, and it was something that just came to me. I had made seven reels of video, one a year, from 70 to, uh, to 77. So part of the problem why I didn't continue was uh, switching from black and white to color. I, I couldn't figure out how to deal with color video. Then you needed a tremendous amount of light. It made the studio hot and, uh, and unpleasant back then. Now every camera records color simply and easily and there's, there's none of that problem. But in the beginning with, those, with that early video, it really made the act of, of making color videos a torture for me. And it also it coincided with me starting to work with a Polaroid 2024 camera in uh, Boston. So that kind of took over as my major medium by 79, 78, 79, I started to, to use that. And then I didn't do video again until 98, and, uh, and I made two years of video again. Can we talk about an early video you did called Spelling Lesson, which mm -hmm. I've seen innumerable times and cracks yeah. me up every time. How did, how did this come to be? Well, it was uh, made in uh, East Hampton in a studio that a friend of mine's father had relinquished and given to us. He, he, it was a factory building. In New York was torturous. I had this miserable little loft on 27th Street uh, that I was subletting, and my dog, Man Ray, who had just moved from the beach in Santa Monica, was tortured by 6th Avenue and 27th Street rather than being at the beach. So I kept thinking of ways to, to not be in New York, but I was you know, a New York artist, so you know, I had to kind of dart back and forth. This piece was made in East Hampton. The idea came to me on the way to the Everson Museum where David Ross was curating a video show, uh, the first video show, I believe, in, in uh, 
73, possibly, something like that. And uh, the Everson Museum was on Walnut Street. But before you came to Walnut, you went to Cedar Beach. And I was sort of saying it out loud, and I said, Beach. And Man Ray just went berserk from the back seat of the car when I said beach. And then, but it was beach, you know, like the tree, not the, not the ocean. And so I went back to New York. I thought of, I dreamt up that piece where I was correcting his spelling, B-E-E-C-H and not B-E-A-C-H. And he had such a fantastic connection to me. Everything I said, uh, there were certain words that uh, he would practically unscrew his head over. Beach was one. My father, who he adored, George, was another. Which I say George, his head would unscrew because George lived, lives and still lives in the country in Massachusetts. So there were these key words. For some reason, it took me a while to figure out what, you know, because I lived in Milwaukee for a while, what Milwaukee was. But there's the word walk in Milwaukee. And so, you know, every once in a while, he'd start getting animated and it was through his how he picked up the, on the language. And when did you move into photographing him? I photographed him simultaneously, and I think that both video and photo were disciplines uh, that were very new to me, but, but ones that I felt could uh, were uh, complementary. Uh, with video, it was pretty much just jumping in front of the camera and dangling things there, whether it was the dog or my finger or a light bulb or whatever it was. With the photos, though, I made little sketches sometimes and, and then would assemble them. So that came out of installation art I had been making in Wisconsin where I felt that actually I was kind of influencing the installation so they'd look better in the photograph. And then it occurred to me that what I really should be doing was making photo pieces, as they became known as, rather than documenting performances or installations. And I also like the power aspect of being able to publish or broadcast, which both video and photography uh, was capable of. You know, your work could be in a magazine and would be understood the same way, whereas uh, a performance, you had to kind of be there, or installation, you, know, you could only see a, an aspect of it, but not the whole thing. I, I felt like when you were looking at one of my photos in a magazine, it may not be as crystallized as it would be in your hands or on the wall, but for me it would mean the same. So that's, that was a major uh, thought I had about it. I want to talk about Man Ray as your subject. The portraits you did of him with the Polaroid are just, just extraordinary. That was towards the end of his life. He was nine years old, and at first we would go to Boston. That's where the camera was, in Cambridge, and so I would stop at my parents' house and pick up possibly some of my mother's golfing clothes or when I was in Boston I'd stay with my friend Betsy, a fellow artist, and borrow some of her stuff. You know, I didn't really want to to make these color pictures, but I found a way to it. It really did sort of made me think in terms of the beautiful again rather than just the cool. Yeah, that's a that's a dilemma, isn't it? Getting it trapped is, by yeah. the cool. I, I took an, an amazingly beautiful photograph and I I didn't uh, trust it, you know, I wanted to uh, deny it, but then I, I decided, okay, that's fine. I didn't go try to do more beautiful ones, it just, but I had to accept that this one was beautiful. It was a picture I'm thinking of of Man Ray where I put false eyelashes on him and he was posing next to a, an old student of mine when I was teaching in Long Beach, Hester. And they were shown in profile and 
somehow the joke was they both have big eyelashes, but you don't see that because it didn't register. So the way I made the work was, you know, it wasn't a successful photograph. It was absolutely stunning. It looks like, in fact, it was on the cover of Art Forum. It was one of their most successful covers, Ingrid Sishi told me. And it was, it was better than, than me, the picture. And that's what photography gives you sometimes by accident, uh, an amazing moment. And it wasn't one I, at the time, I could have dreamt up. I'm going to do this, this powerful picture of Beauty and the Beast. It looked very masculine, feminine. It was like a double profile rather than you know, a joke about the eyelashes. I understand being open to what's unexpected, but how do you conceptualize what you're going to do with the dogs before you start clicking the camera? Lately, since I've been working so many years with dogs, uh, I always kind of start with the same thing. There's always these white pedestals around. Put the dog on or in the box and start from there. And then, you know, bore yourself silly and go on or find a new way to do a dog in a box. <laughs> and it helps them. They like to know what they're doing, that they're here at this place rather than just generally over there. Uh, my dogs aren't so well trained where I'll say, go over in there and put one foot up. I mean, there are dogs that do that kind of stuff. But I go over and I set them and it's, it's almost a little dance, you know, it's very physical where I'm holding them and I'm playing with their pose and so forth. So they're very accommodating. My dogs, I think, because they're gray, have given me such latitude also, the sort of neutrality of them, where they can become a Dalmatian or a poodle or a space modulator or a, you know, a rock. You know, they can transform because of this neutral tone they have, this blankness. Well, I also think not only is it the neutral tone, but it's the coat the short for the sheen mm -hmm. of that coat and yeah. what it does with light is so fascinating to I me. I think so too and I, I remember especially it came out in the Polaroids that would be photographing one against a red background and the dogs look kind of pink and then against yellow they look like yellow labs almost. They, they're really like little mirrors. When they run in the woods they get kind of purpley. It's a blue sky out and they're running through the woods they look purple. So they do reflect this light in a really nice way. Feyre was the second dog you had that you photographed a lot, and she became a star in her own right. How different were Man Ray and Feyre? Very. Faye was more of a thoroughbred. Man Ray might have been not even a pure Weimaraner, although I'm told he was a blue Weimaraner, so he's darker. I got him at six weeks. I got Faye at, at six months, and she came somewhat... I wouldn't say damaged, but when she met New York City, it wasn't a happy moment. She was terrified of those roll-down gates, people kicking trash cans, and in the studio, light stands had to it was really, if we were doing any kind of film work around light stands or if we were on a talk show, if the band was playing too loud, you know, she looked petrified. She looked sometimes like a helicopter that's been shot down and spinning on the ground foaming and spinning and spitting. And Man Ray was so solid and uh, impervious to it. He seemed laconic. Of, yeah, and he wasn't ruffled the way she was, but she had this love of working at Polaroid. She just craved the strobe light, the praise. She liked it if it was difficult. She'd like, you know, wow, look at that. She, she really loved hearing that. What made you start thinking of 
children's books, and I'm thinking about the fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, two people I knew, Carol Kazmarek and Marvin Heiferman, said, how would you like to do a children's book, uh, fairy tales, or something like that? I said, okay. So I, I did that, and uh, it, the first book that I chose was Cinderella because it seemed to be a parallel with when you adopt a dog, you become their stepmother, and uh, you know, you're either the, their fairy godmother, father, or the evil one. You're taking them away from their, their home, and you're putting them in a new home. It seems like a perfect story. The other one I liked was Little Red Riding Hood because I live in the woods in Maine, and that appealed to me. And the idea of the transformation of a dog into a grandmother or vice versa, you know, seemed, seemed totally what I could do. So I did those two. They were kind of conceived simultaneously. Cinderella came out first, but I think well, the one I really wanted to do was, and the easier one was uh, Little Red Riding Hood. I knew a dentist who made false teeth for one of my dogs to become fangs. She, he actually made an appliance which this dog wore, and uh, that was a highlight reel for me. How did the dogs respond to their props? Yeah, well, Faye, I had to be, since she was so vulnerable, I had to be careful of certain things. She didn't like to sit next to plants. Don't ask me why. And she didn't like things that were metal. And she didn't like, she didn't not like, but she didn't particularly like sitting next to other dogs other than her, her daughter, Batty. And Batty was completely opposite. She was, she was like narcoleptic. She would fall asleep on the set and super relaxed. She would get very quiet where Faye would get kind of bug-eyed. And Batty's sister, Crookie, who was uh, in several of my videos for children and, and films as well, had kind of the opposite of uh, complimentary to Batty. She was also bug-eyed and the bomb's going to go off. So I had these characters that had different personalities, which I really liked working with. They are really amused. Uh, you know, just when they're just on the couch over here and you look at them and the way the light falls or certain things that happen, the stretching she's doing now, you know, all of those things, you know, I just love being around them. How did you manage to make so many photographs and videos with dogs without it falling into a gimmick? Well, I don't know. I was very, very careful not to uh, overuse him. The real danger, I suppose, was when I started to make books, children's books and so forth, and uh, that happened with Faye, where I made her tall one day at Polaroid. You know, the the camera's vertical, and I was trying to get things up there. So I put Faye on a pedestal, and I was wrapping fabric around her as though she was some kind of a column. And my assistant, Andrea, was talking to me from behind and helping keep Faye up there. And it looked like her arms became Faye's. And it was just it was startling and funny and eerie and not terribly cute, like dogs dressed up tend to be. So I thought it was okay, since it was menacing somewhat. It looked more like uh, creatures from mythology rather than some cartoon or circus. So, so I kind of went with that. But I think then it became like a one-liner about me. Oh, he's the guy that dresses up dogs. You know, the guy that dresses up those dogs. And that's, that's why people, I'm sure, still remember me, even though it was just a small part of the work. Man Ray, I never dressed him up as a person. I dressed him up as uh, an Airedale once and a frog and, a, and an elephant or just as a dog, another kind of dog sometimes. But with Faye, she became this creature that became the evil stepmother. She became uh, like a Joan Crawford character. She became 
these personas, and then I'd turn her back into a caterpillar sometimes. So, and then when I had multiple dogs, and I had all of these characters, I had first Faye and her daughter Batty, and her son Chundo, and they became sort of the superstars of my children's books. The press became there. I would go on book tours. There'd be newspaper articles. There'd be spots on talk shows, and and that made this uh, this kind of work almost work against the, the art world. It, it became, uh, I think, for some, not all, but you know, he's no longer an artist. He's doing these he's commercial. Yeah. So I, I could understand that in a way. Don't you think, or I'll just tell you what I think, and you sure, can tell please. me if you think it, um, but don't you think in a way what you were doing was sort of breaking down that dichotomy between high art and what's popular? Mm-hmm. It seems to me throughout your career, something you've always been concerned about is having your work be accessible to people. I really did. I, I, I was very stymied right before I had the sort of breakthrough in, in video and photo. I was uh, putting interesting things on the wall like mud and hair and rotting carrots and I remember a, a fellow artist came into my studio and there was debris all over the floor and he, he said it looked really great and it did and that was the problem you know, the stuff on the floor looked really good but I didn't do it on purpose and I really felt like I needed to control every aspect of, of the work that I needed the intention there I needed to clarity and one way of knowing whether this clarity was being received was if someone responded, and laughter is one way where you really know someone gets it. And I think that must have really appealed to me, the fact that uh, someone just fell down laughing. But I wasn't really necessarily after humor, but it certainly did pat me on the back, I guess. Well, it permeates a lot of your work, wouldn't yeah. you say? I think I have a funny bone, and I notice the video pieces, most of them are funny. The ones that are interesting, you know, I'm less interested in, I suppose. The photo pieces, one tends not to laugh at. The drawings that I started to make in my third year of my serious work, I suppose, by 73, some of those are really funny, I think. And it has to do with, drawings can be funny in a way paintings never can be because of the weight of history that they have. And if they're, they are funny, then that's complicated by their physicality, whereas a drawing, is physical, but it, has, it also is not. And I think that's purer and funnier and, and whips into your head and stays there, where a painting gets into your head, but it's much more powerful to stand in front of it and receive it that way. That's why it's always refreshing and rejuvenating to go to museums and stand in front of the Curico that you see all the time. You start to live it in a different way. Tell me when you return to painting, to actually painting on canvas again. Sure. I was a painter. I stopped painting in my first year of grad school. I kind of bought into the fact that painting was dead. So when I started to have dreams that I was painting, I think it was in my mid-40s or even late 40s, I, I felt like I really had to do it. But I went back to my last painting that I did in high school. I painted pictures of the Breck girl. Uh, which got me accepted at Mass Art. <laughs> I was good at drawing. <laughs> so I made these uh, paintings as if I never went to art school. Also, I've been drawing, too, so they kind of look like my drawings kind of come to life. They were a little scrappy and funky, I suppose. And uh, 
Holly Solomon, who was my dealer at the time, was so in love with painting to begin with that she she just was wonderful to show work to and and encouraged, I guess. And so somewhat embarrassed about returning to painting, but knowing that I really loved it, but also didn't know how. I thought I knew how, but I didn't. I had to kind of learn how. So I really had moved far away from my drawings into doing paintings the way painters would paint. Uh, my first ones were, you know, I had to think, what's a suitable subject for painting? You know, it's, it's, there's something different about painting than drawing and photos, and you have to think about what it should be. So I think one of my most brilliant decisions was that it should be on canvas, and it should look like Cezanne. So I did a painting of tents, which were of canvas, of canvas, on canvas, but it look, they look like Cezanne. So there were all of those kind of funny but historical uh, notions about, about them. And then since painting takes time, sometimes they're just things that, things that you daydream about while you're making them. You had a big retrospective in 2006, Funny Strange, yeah, that's, which is a perfect yeah. title. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that was based on one of the drawings that I made for another show in Boston, actually, which I've never told anyone because it seemed like the wrong thing to tell someone. But uh, when David Ross was at the ICA in Boston, I believe it was, he had a show which he titled Funny Strange, and I made a poster for it. And that show, I think, was interesting because it showed every line of my work in, in a pretty well flushed out. Photos, videos, paintings they all seem to be established. Whereas the show that I had at the Whitney in, in 87, I think it was, it looked almost like, um, well, for this class he did these, and for this class that. But you know, the, the time period made the selection process, and it seemed more, have more weight, every line. I think of myself as having these four lines, of the drawings, the paintings, the videos, the photos. Those are the things that I do, and each branch, each chapter is major for me. I don't weight one higher than the other. I think for many people, it was really the first time they got a glimpse of how wide your net is. Yeah, that's what I uh, saw and liked about it, too, that it seemed to mix it together. Floaty, she's working on a project. It seemed to mix it together and... It seemed all okay there, it seemed, to hold up. Tell me what you're working on now. Well, I'm working on these paintings with postcards, and I've been doing that since 90-something or other. Three was the first time I stuck a postcard to a piece of paper and started to extend, extend it. But now the latest ones seem to have a lot of design elements, and I'm working in as many different ways as I possibly can. I have about two billion postcards, so... Until I use them all up, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Well, thank you so much. Flo, really. She's young. Yeah. That's painter, video artist, photographer, and dog lover, William Wegman. Wegman had received two NEA fellowships, one in 1975 for video and another in 1982 for photography. If you go to arts.gov and click on NEA Arts, you'll find a special issue of the magazine devoted to artists who received NEA fellowships at pivotal moments in their career. And you can also see an online slideshow of William Wegman's work.
You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from For Eric, Piano Study, from the album Metascapes. Composed and performed by Todd Barton, used courtesy of Valley Productions. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. Now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, novelist Dean Pacopoulos. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>